Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Hi, I'm Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I'll be speaking today with Tamara McCleary. She is an international branding expert, technology futurist, and Thulium CEO. She was named number one most influential woman in MarTech by B2B Marketing and ranked by Leadtail as the third most mentioned person on Twitter by chief marketing officers. Thulium is an influence marketing agency with a focus on social media, account-based marketing in the B2B and enterprise space, and just, she's just an all-around great person. So I'm thrilled to have Tamara with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Tiffany. This is pretty exciting. I know it's like, a, you know, it's like two girls sitting and having a, you know, a cocktail or a coffee, depending on, you know, which we prefer whatever time of day it is. Um, but I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. And I'm going to start this off with a little fun to kind of loosen things up. And I do something called bullish and bearish. I'm just going to ask you a question, nothing prepared. Uh, and I haven't sort of asked you ahead of time. So hopefully we'll get this off the cuff. But I just want to hear if you're bullish and bearish on it. And then maybe after that, we can dig into a couple of them. But let me start with this first one. So I know you are famous, absolutely famous, and Twitter famous, apparently, for your shoes on stage. So here is the question, <laughs> bullish or bearish, 3D printed custom high heels? Ooh, bullish. Oh, nice. All right. And if you're going to buy those shoes, second question, virtual shopping not going to a store and doing it via virtual reality. Oh, you are talking my language. I'm saying bullish all the way. Awesome. That's two for two on bullish. I almost have to find one that's bearish. You're too, you're almost too easy. All right, let's do, uh, let's do this third one on smart retail, really anticipating what you may want next, bullish or bearish. Oh, I am so bullish on that. Three bullish? Oh, yeah. I should have gone to Vegas. Darn. <laughs> well, it's also because I know you a little well. But, you know, let, let's, let's start with the – I just sort of want to hone in because I was at an event. It had to be last year. It was November, It was Christmas time, New York. You know, the, the Christmas tree had just been lit in, time, lit in Times Square. And uh, I was speaking at this conference, and this uh, woman came in with a startup, and she was literally doing 3D-printed shoes. And so oh. she, she came into the uh, event and it was a women in technology event. So, you know, there were obviously women in there who were very interested in this, this new offer. And she put a little pad on the ground and, you know, you'd have to stand on it. And so it would take, you know, your arch and your, you know, how you stood and all of the features of your feet. And then what would happen is it would, you know, sort of store that, put it up in the cloud and then you could pick from a handful of designs and then your shoes would just show up perfectly designed for your foot. Sign me up. Oh my right? word. That's that. You might have to build another wing if that happened. But, mm -mm -mm. you know, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be interested to hear sort of what you think about this, you know, commerce that is 3D sort of instant, and all this, though this wasn't like, you know, they, they took a mold and then it was done five minutes later. It wasn't quite that instantaneous, right? But very custom and personalized using technology for a market where, uh, you know, in shoes, as an example, 
you know, they're either comfortable or they're not comfortable. And expensive and not expensive almost has no bearing on whether they're comfortable or not comfortable. So, you know, what yeah, would just you... Just ask my Jimmy Choo's, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so, you know, I didn't want to sort of say the brand, but you can go for it. Um, but, you know... I love my Jimmy Choo's, but you know what? Sometimes the pleasure is worth the pain. Well... And clearly, with all of your Twitter comments on you for your stage shoes last week, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say that uh, they were a big hit. But, you know, talk me through sort of how you think that will change shopping to, to specific demographics if you're trying to solve uh, sort of a retail personalization issue with some of these on-demand 3D. Well, I think, you know, you've brought up such a really delicious topic because the consumer has changed. We've all changed. Um, we've changed in this digital era where I think you slightly hit on it, which is we have the inability to delay gratification. And we like what we like, when we like it, how we like it, where we like it. And we want it now. So I think that all of this is just a, an evolution of what we've come to expect at least here in the United States, and uh, 3D printing, and then you know the the uh, moving of the central locations where uh, things are manufactured. So, for instance, in the in the idea of a shoe where you can have it 3D printed for you, it would be ideally very close to you, and then delivered to you by you know maybe dropped off by a drone. Who knows? Yeah, and I, and I think you, you hit on something around this sort of personalization, this hyper-personalization, right? If I want it, when I want it, how I want it, in what channel potentially, et cetera. And I think if you peel that back a couple of layers, I mean, anyone who's responsible for selling or marketing or servicing in that kind of high demand around personalization, hyper-personalization, I should say, right, and hyper-segmentation, how do you do that at scale, right? Because I think that one-to-one -one example I gave about the shoes is it's easy. You have 300 people contained. They all sort of walk through over the course of the day and a half and they put their feet on there and, you know, it's contained. You can scale that. But how do you do that unless you're, you know, physically with someone in that environment? But more importantly, just that personalization uh, hyper in a multi-channel, multicultural, you know, global, highly connected world is really tough. You know, though, that's where I believe uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning come in. Because at the type, the, the kind of speeds that you're talking about to be able to scale at that level is, is beyond human. And at that point, I believe that's where we have uh, machine learning uh, speeding up the process and blowing our minds with how quickly we can get the right you know, content or product or, or service to the right person through the right messaging, wherever they happen to be, uh, because it'll already be known where you are. Yeah, and if you play that out and say, wish, and I agree, I think artificial intelligence and machine learning have that opportunity. And so l let me just take a side pause there for a second, and maybe you could just for the listeners sort of give your definition of both of those two things because I think they get tossed around a lot and and while there are some you know very big macro definitions of them love to hear what you think they are in in this context oh absolutely because you know when you artificial intelligence you know most people have thought about well you know we sort of grew, didn't we grow up around the same era I think 
you know, we, we grew up thinking that artificial intelligence was, you know, Robbie the robot. <laughs> and, you know, artificial intelligence isn't the robot that we had imagined. In fact, if you've used Amazon Echo or Siri, you know, you've been using AI. That's artificial intelligence. And machine learning, where we're at in the realm now of artificial intelligence, machine learning is where the, the machine is actually learning from past data. So for instance, you know, the Tesla. The Tesla, you know, every night it gets plugged in and it's uploaded to the mothership and, you know, it's, it's got, uh, it's, it's programmed with downloads from all the other Teslas, all the other machines that have learned something that day are contributing to the data that's now going to affect the entire uh, universe of Tesla. So the machine is learning, but it doesn't have to learn like a human being does. So machine learning, the reason it's so fascinating is a human baby, each baby that's born has to learn on its own. It has to relearn. So it's not going to have the information from all the other babies that came before it. Now with machines, it has that information already, so it doesn't have to relearn something that has already been learned by a, a separate sensor. So the reason why machine learning is growing at such a rapid pace is because that it, it is taking the data from all the other past learning experiences and it's continuing to evolve and get better and stronger and quicker based on the data previously. And so, it, it, and, and thank you for those definitions because I think, you know, I did a panel a couple months back and we spent time just talking about bots and uh, artificial intelligence and virtual reality, et cetera. And I think it was super helpful, right? Because people hear these terms and especially uh, in a small and mid business or, you know, you're starting in your career or you're in a startup and it's sort of like, oh, it's things that I can't achieve or I can't afford or, you know, it's way uh, out of my range. And I think you've just outlined that uh, it's happening more and more around us. And so how do we take advantage of those things? Uh, it, you know, and, I, and I'd say this, in, in retail, so I just want to hone in there for a second because I think with the example we started with, so much is happening in retail stores today. You know, you're just hearing this, you know, deluge of stores are closing, retail is dead. And in, this, in the same breath almost, you hear or read another article that's saying, you know, another brand is opening stores and growing exponentially. And without using names, right, because it isn't, that, that isn't the point of this question. The, the point of the question is, based on what we've just been talking about, why do you think some retailers, regardless of size, right, is, are failing while other retailers are not? Um, and let me stop there and then I'll, I'll sort of follow up a second one. Well, I think that the, the success or demise of a particular retailer isn't just on whether or not there's a brick and mortar store, right? And I know you agree with me on this because, you know, we both enjoy the entire experience. I think most people do. And so the success of a retailer that is opening other physical brick and mortar shops um, has other things going for it as well. And part of that is, you know, they do are catering to the client who wants to shop online or through an app, but those that want to still have that tactile experience, that kinesthetic experience of touching and feeling the product and trying it on and, and having it right there available is still very enticing to 
a great number of, of people, but those stores are still harnessing the power of technology with the way that they're displaying their product, right? And the way that they are offering suggestions to customers through the use of, you know, AI and machine learning. I mean, the one thing is we are all carrying around our cell phones. So we have a mobile phone with us and information um, about us is being gleaned from our mobile phones. And then we can have push, push through messaging, um, you know, within an, a store to let us know about a product that it already knows that we're interested in. And um, so the stores that are functioning really well, I believe in that brick and mortar space, aren't exclusively brick and mortar, first of all. And secondly, they're using technology to learn more and more about their customer and to personalize that experience. Because again, the reason people are attracted to going into a physical location is for the experience. So I would, I would, I totally agree. And I think you'd also want to say that the only, I, I hope you're not saying, and I, and I know you well enough to know you're not, but I just want to make sure we're clear here, is that you can still get a very high touch personalized experience online. Oh, that's my world. preferred method. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. No, you know so, me. That's that's yeah. how I shop. So you um, have the balance of the two experiences. And, and I'd say, I think if you look at retailers that are closing versus those that are opening, and then if you see ones that have grown up online and never had brick and mortar and now are opening brick and mortar or acquiring brick and mortar, <laughs> or you right. have those that were brick and mortar that have closed and gone totally online, or you mm -hmm. see people who have sold their brick and mortar businesses, um, you know, going back to your shoe example, right, you could say, and your, you know, you could even say your Jimmy Choo's, she is now doing direct to consumer, she's not doing retail, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, under a new brand. And so, you know, I, I would say that you have these shifts between, re, you know, digital and brick and mortar and, and vice versa. And so I, I think data has a huge play in this. T tell me your thoughts on, on using data in these new competitive ways, specifically on the topic of customer experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's such a great question because data can give us so much rich depth on the individual, right? So in the past, in, in looking at trying to market and sell a product, you know, people were lumped into cohorts, right? They were lumped into segments. And then everybody in that segment was sold to in the same way. And, you know, what we're seeing now is that we're able to not put you and me and everyone else in a box in a segment and instead, we are able to market to you and everyone else individually, which is a huge shift, right? So, you know, in the old days, you'd run an email campaign and the data would have told you that the best time for you to send your email campaign was, you know, Thursday at 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So uh, everybody got hit with the email at that time, but it didn't take into account that lots of people don't like to get email messages that way. And uh, so now asking of the data, what the individual, when the individual opens their email, when are they usually online and what are they doing? Um, is it, you know, SMS text messaging that they prefer instead? Maybe they don't use email. So their push would be through text versus email. 
we're able to shift things to the individual versus trying to hit everybody as a segment. Yeah, and do you think that the segments are shifting as well? Because I hear this a lot, right? And and you touched upon it where you say, uh, you know, I've always, I hear a lot, right, that it's an it's an age segment or it's a region segment or it's a- <laughs> Or a gender segment. segment. <laughs> or a jet, okay, or a gender segment, right? right? Uh, so, you know, all women want or all men want, you know, and all millennials want and all baby boomers or, you know, whatever it might be. And I actually think that there is a uh, good understanding uh, about the pure millennial. I think it gets uh, difficult when you start getting into uh, other generations where they are actually really technically savvy and may behave like millennials in many ways, except for things around maybe security and sharing personal data where I think those are the things that of, of the older generation, right, will go, you know, that's where I'll sort of stop. But I, but I behave a lot like a millennial as I'm always connected 24-7. And like you saying, you know, I want it when I want it, you know, how I want it, in what channel, et cetera. That's a very millennial statement if you were to cat do those big macro categories. And so how can, you know, people who are running sales or marketing or service get better in those segmentations using data or AI or machine learning? to be more micro-focused on segments and more around the behavior, right, than the, than the human persona, but more on the behavior side, I'm guessing. Right, and you know, what you're, what you're bringing up, and which I should finish on the big data question that you gave me, is the fact that we have to ask the right questions of the data, right? So data is only as good as you understand the question you're trying to answer. And I've seen this a lot where you know people are expecting the data to bring answers to questions they haven't asked, and, and that's just not gonna happen. And so when we're asking questions of the data within these uh, cohorts, right? So if we're asking the right questions of, say, a female demographic from the ages of 25 to 35, we also have to, to layer in other factors within that realm. Are they, you know, working? Are they married? Are they single? Are they, ooh, one, one piece of data that really comes up when you look at uh, spend is, you know, two, two pieces. Once when a woman just has a baby and when um, she's recently divorced. The two, two times in her life, if we have that data on a woman where we know she's gonna be spending a lot more money than her usual behavior. So when you're looking at behavioral traits and you're looking at spending patterns, um, it's really important to know what you're asking because not every female between the ages of 25 and 35 are going to fit within that level of specificity. Yeah, and I'd even say there was a really interesting, there's some interesting work we've done um, that has actually looked at data and its bias. Fascinating mm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Because who, when you said you have to ask the data the right questions, right, to, yeah. to get the right data, who writes those questions <laughs> actually has an impact on the data bias, right, the uh, output. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really super fascinating you know, for another time. But, ev you know, even just looking at data um, and, and how questions are asked, if you do it in a survey like that or you start asking the machine that versus not asking and watching data that happens organically, 
and then let it tell you something is different. Super oh, fascinating. You know, yeah. what, what you said, I know we're just touching there and we're leaving real quick, but that it's fascinating because with um, visual recognition, uh, computing technology, you know, even in visual recognition, they were finding the computer having biases. Because probably who wrote the program? <laughs> and it's not a man or a woman. I don't mean that in that way. Right. It has a lot to do. It could do. It has to do with gender. It could do with culture. It could do with religion. It could do with where they were born and raised. It could be. It's a lot. Of, bias is not just you know gender specific. Um, and so a lot of it is that. And so there's some really interesting stuff out there now about um, data bias and, and trying to cut through it because you can almost always make a hypothesis prove out if you write the questions, right? <laughs> well, it was really interesting. I just, I heard Tim Berners-Lee, uh, speak, uh, just maybe six weeks ago. And he was talking about singularity, of course, right? Which is always so fun to talk about, but he was talking about how, you know, machines, you know, computers will have bias. And they will have bias even separate from human beings. Yeah, it would be interesting if he's double clicked, clicked on that, you know, across what, mm -hmm. well, what is the source of it? But um, I, I think that, uh, you know, if I were to broaden this and get back out from, from the, the, the nits and nats of the data side of it, I want to pivot just a little bit because you know, you and I spend quite a bit of time together, so, uh, you know, it's great to have you uh, on, on the podcast, of course. But, you know, I think we're pretty bullish on customer experience being this new battleground. Um, and you hear it tossed around a lot, uh, and a lot of the work I did in my you know, previous life was part of the fuel to this fire. <laughs> so I take some responsibility for it. But, <laughs> but, I, but I'd say that when you think about that, people get caught between a number of terms, customer experience, and then how do you measure that? So I'm gonna sit that one for a second. And you have sort of customer success and how do you measure that? And you know who's responsible? And you know this is a topic I really love to talk about. So you know, kind of give me your first blush response on who do you think owns customer experience? Let me start there. Oh, I know that one's loaded because I know you. <laughs> but, you know, you, you and I both know if you ask that to most people, you know, marketing's going to want to pick up customer experience. But what I really believe in what I've seen is that, you know, customer experience is everyone's job. So it's marketing's job, it's sales job, it's customer services job. It's also your product developer's job. You know, the customer's experience with the product or service is an amalgamation of all the players, right? Because your experience, my experience with any brand is influenced by every single person or touch point, right? It might not even be an actual person, it might be the chatbot, but it's, it's influenced by our experience along that journey, right? So it's everybody's job. And I think that's the tough part right there. If we were going to nail it on the head, it's who owns it. Because if everybody owns a piece of it, it's very difficult for anyone to take complete control. 
Well, you said the operative word. This is all about control, <laughs> right? This is, all, this is all about control. And and in any survey, you wanted be, me to say that. You of course I did. Me. I totally, totally led you to the water me. on that one. Totally led you to the it's water. The last right? time I enjoyed so, your podcast. <laughs> yep. I doubt that. But if you if you say, you know, if you ask marketing, marketing will say they own it. If you ask sales, I mean, you know, so mm-hmm. for me, I couldn't agree with you more. I think everybody owns it. But in saying that, I've gotten a lot of pushback by people that say, if everybody owns it, nobody owns it, which means who's held accountable for it, mm-hmm. which that gets tricky, right? So you have to think of what's a common metric you can get everybody wrapped around that we all may own the t- this metric. Maybe it's net promoter score, maybe it's customer satisfaction, whatever that is. Uh, yet we own pieces of it, but I think the connective tissue now is even more important than ever, right? The collaboration between all these different groups and so it isn't so much trying to control it. It's about enabling everybody to do what's right by the customer. So what are things you, because you talk to so many CMOs and, and obviously, you know, you're well regarded in that community. You know, what when you talk to the CMOs, what, what are they saying that they feel is the right set of metrics to get a handle on that performance around experience? Well, you know, for sure, the big talk right now is the net promoter score. And, um, you know, that that's that's the metric du jour. But, you know, one thing that you said that I think is really important is you said enable your um, organization, everyone within the organization to take responsibility. And I think that piece is playing a big part right now within organizations in in trying to boost customer experience. Um, there's a huge wave right now of trying to shift culture within the company. And it's a culture of, of leadership, um, you know, top, bottom, side, with everybody taking responsibility for the customer. And, you know, I think, you know, sales has always been traditionally incentivized for producing. And I've seen a trend that I think is really interesting where you're incentivizing your other folks as well for increasing customer experience. And so, you know, when, whenever you hit anyone in the paycheck and the pocketbook and there's a potential for doing better, if the customer does better, it's an incentive. And I think it's really interesting to shift just uh, that one piece of of the puzzle instead of sales being the only one that's driven and incentivized is incentivizing all the other individuals within your organization as well from your lips to my ears love that <laughs> because <laughs> i'm always like look if you want to own it take the quota yes <laughs> Have at it, right and you know it's it's a motivator and it's also you know here's the other thing too uh, because you know i came into marketing through sales um and so i think that's our commonality there but I find that when you incentivize someone and you empower them to to be able to impact their you know own economy through making sure the customer is taken care of, I think what you do is you level the playing field too, and you also break down some of these silos that separate. Um, and you know, there's nothing more empowering than knowing that if you're doing a good job, you're going to be rewarded. And I think it's inspiring. It's motivational. And um, it's it's a very healthy thing for a company to employ, and it does shift culture. 
Yeah, I think competition is good as well. You know, as long as it's healthy competition and sort of, you know, you you win graciously and you you lose graciously and, you know, you you become a much better team because of it. Uh, I think it's really important. And I and I would say even some ways in which marketing is leaning into this is by actually taking some resources or creating groups that are really quota-based, right, incentivized to do those yes. behaviors like account-based marketing or sales development reps or, you know, outbound reps, right, really trying to get closer to if we're going to learn the data, you know, let us get it so far um, and let us help the customer on their buying journey. And then when we make this handoff to sales, that we don't just do what we've done and toss it over the fence, that we give it a really warm, warm handoff with a whole bunch of intelligence behind it to set the salesperson up to be really successful. And I think that's where you see really goodness happening. Exactly. And you know, you're incentivizing everyone to realize the, the lifetime value of a customer, right? So it's not just a one and done or close the sale and then it's over it's continuing that relationship. And that's where I think the silos have come down between um, marketing, sales, and product development and customer service is that longevity of a relationship with a customer and then learning you know, what's working, what's not, that, hel that helps feed back into your product developer, right? And you know, what I think is really interesting is now that we do have the computing capacity, with which to make sense of you know buckets of data that we have is that we are now actually able to prove how marketing and sales and um, everyone within the organization is driving that business bottom line. And I think that's critical to prove, make someone understand their worth within a company and that what they do matters because now we can measure it. Yeah, and I think contribution is important. I think, uh, you know, as you know, right, you can't manage what you don't measure. Um, and and so I, I'm a, I'm a big believer of it. I think some of some of the issues that we you know that I hear is is most definitely that some of this soft stuff is hard to measure, uh, and it and it can't always be an incentive based reason, right? It has to be I buy in, right? Like I actually say I get this, I understand the vision, I'm here, and I'm doing what I need to do to support the customer. Uh, because I know my company will back me up if I do what's right for them, you know, legally and all those things, right? Well, you know, this has been way too short. We started talking about shoes. We went right through big technology conversations, and we ended up with customer experience. I think this was great. <laughs> How about you? Oh, yeah. It was awesome. Now you got my mind reeling. <laughs> Well, you know, I'd just like to give you just some final thoughts. I know that, you know, for all of your, you know, your lots of followers that you have, you know, if there's anything you want to leave a little tidbit on for, for them to, you know, follow up on any work you're doing in these areas, please, please do so. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking because I, I think I can measure almost anything. And now we are getting to the point where we're able to get the kind of data off of mobile phones that can track all kinds of interesting behaviors and patterns, even at live events, right? That there's so, so few things now that we really can't measure that I think it's exciting. And uh, social media account-based marketing is awesome because in the B2B and enterprise space, those are tough, tough sales sometimes with very long gestation periods. And so 
harnessing the power of you know social listening and you know building a better relationship with the prospect which to me is is key relationships are everything and there are no shortcuts to relationship is um inspiring and exciting and i couldn't be more thrilled that that's what we are up to at thulium and it's just a lot of fun to work with so many incredible clients and customers to help them grow their businesses there's nothing more thrilling than that couldn't agree more so with that said tamara my friend one of my mentors someone who i look to all the time i so appreciate uh, you spending some time with us today on the what's next podcast and i look forward to having everybody give us some feedback and tell us what you think but we'll catch you on the next time thank you tamra for joining me thank you so much tiffany bye everybody